Hello, my friends. I'm curious to know how many of you have a leadership pipeline. We know that great leaders grow companies because we talk to them here on the show every day. But what are you doing to create great leaders within yours? If you're a CTO, it is 100% your responsibility to grow and improve your people beyond just their coding abilities. We've built a tool that improves your people in their craft and in leadership. Visit leaderbits.io to learn more. Today, we are talking to Eric Schrock, the CTO at Delphix, and we discuss challenging yourself by exploring new dimensions of a business, how managing people is much different than managing a system, and how Eric just might be the David Hasselhoff of technology writers. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. First time ever this morning, so I'm so excited to share. I went. And I've been. I was in a data center. I went to a data center. Oh yeah. Yeah. So first time. <laughs> first time being in like a real data center. Like I've been in like a data center before, like server room type thing. Right. But this was like a data center, data center, and it was yeah, for, like a. Yeah, it's for the county. Oh, nice. So like a football field of, uh, you know, servers or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it was large. And then the floors have these like removable tiles. You have this like suction cup thing. You just go, and there's like, yeah, that's where all the, you see all the gas lines under there. He's like, if there's a fire, the gas is pressurized. And then I got to go in the back and like see the giant like power systems that they have and the air conditioning yeah. that they're shoving the AC under. It's like, it's such a big, huge setup through these data centers. It's unbelievable. Well, yeah, and, you know, engineers these today's thanks to the cloud are like never gonna experience that. Right? Right? It's gonna become rare, rare, and rare to like you know go walk on the floor of a data center. It was it was smart though because they they structured the data center and like like these racks are for the school boards, like the kids' school lunches and everything are here, <laughs> and this is for the hospital. So all the medical records and everything are like here. And for me, I was just like, whoa! And it's in a yeah. building that you would never expect. Like I've driven by the building a million times and I would never expect it to be the, the lifeblood of the county. Yeah. yeah. No, I find, I find like data center tech fascinating. Like the like machine learning predictions about weather patterns to like adjust humidity and temperature ahead of time. It's like, you know, if you get it wrong, it'd be like, oh, that just cost us $200,000, you know, because we, you know, ran the, coolers the wrong way or whatever for this weather weather pattern so it's fascinating and so you do a lot with data tell me a little bit of what delphix and is am i saying that correctly delphix yeah yeah what does delphix do with data yeah so you know we build a data platform that makes it easy to capture and secure data and then deliver it to the people who need it right so if you're an engineer you're building an app you're a tester inevitably you want realistic data to test against and validate against. And in a lot of these large enterprises that we serve, because we sell primarily to kind of the global 2000 large companies, that's really hard to get production data or production-like data. You know, when you talk about security constraints and privacy, when you talk about just the size of these data stores and the cost of moving it, and we eliminate all of that so that you can get full data environments in minutes, we can mask them, we can redact them, and let you do your own work to you know refresh, reset, roll back, and manage that data. 
That's pretty neat. So the customer, like a CTO would buy from you. So his team could, or her team could have this real production data, but in sort of their development environment. Yeah. I mean, what we're seeing is so much of today's economy is being driven by data, right? If you think about companies that are competing out there, like everybody's a data company, like whether you know it or not, like you're a data company and your ability to gather that data, leverage that data, apply it, apply it to deliver services to your customers or derive new insights into your business is pretty critical. So the faster you can do that and the more effective you can be, the more of an edge you have in the market and, you know, the more money you can make. Um, and that's really what's driving a lot of the you know, issues around privacy and governance is you've got this explosion of data and, you know, companies suck at managing data. <laughs> and so bad things happen like data breaches and, you know, massive regulatory fines and things like that. Now, do you guys help companies with that type of stuff too, or just the production data being accessible? What? the two are really tied together in a way that it's hard to extricate, right? You know, if you think about the risk carried within your data, right, that you've got people's personal information, obvious things like credit card numbers and, and, you know, stuff like that. Um, but there's a lot of other stuff that could considered personal or sensitive. Um, and how do you, then enable that data to flow into your analytics systems, to your app developers, to your third party, you know, providers who need to do testing, you have to integrate some tightly, some level of, you know, risk mitigation, masking, obfuscation techniques like that, such that you can safely allow that data into these downstream environments. Cause you ain't going to se secure your third party offshore development center in the same way you manage your production data, right? That's just not economically feasible. So you've got to be able to figure out how do I mitigate risk while I'm delivering data to these folks. So when I'm assuming you were just born, you came out of the womb and you were just like data. <laughs> how, how did your, how did your passion for technology come about? So um, I've always loved creating things. At the end of the day, it's like, two things in life that drive me. I love creating things and I love having positive impact on the people around me. And those two things dictate so much of my life. You know, I like to, I do woodworking. I like to play jazz piano. I love cooking. Um, I used to do art, you know, back in school. And yet I have this very, you know, analytical mind. And so I saw software engineering as like this perfect combination. It's like, oh, it's this infinite canvas, right? It's like I could, I can paint with logic, right? And I can create with, you know, math. And, and that just really drew me into computer science, you know, from a very young age. I took my first university programming course when I was, you know, like, 12 or something um, and just loved it. Um, I've only had three jobs and all of them have been, you know, programming. <laughs> and so, um, but as I went to university and, and started trying to figure, okay, well, where do I want to specialize? Like computer science is a big field. Um, what I really gravitated towards is kind of systems programming, you know, and, and obviously that's things like operating systems and file systems you're basically always learning new things, right? You're always finding some new part of the system. You're already exploring some new constraint. And, and if you can figure out how to navigate those effectively 
you can come up with some really amazing ideas. And so I ended up going into operating system development and from there kind of navigated into uh, the ZFS storage team at, at Sun. And then that was the sort of start of my data focus, right? So it was sort of like, I love CS. I love hard systems problems. Uh, you know, I like data and that sort of carried my career into, into Delphix. So at what point were you like, I want to be a CTO? Um, so I joined Delphix as an individual engineer and I, I was director of engineer application engineering as VP of engineering for four years. And what happened to me was, um, you know, I started to think about like, what is it am I trying to create? Like I love creating things, that's great. And for so much of my career, that was code, right? Or product or, you know, um, you know, physical manifestations of that. And it sort of got to the point in my career where, you know, I, I got a high degree of confidence at kind of doing that, you know? And not, not that each new thing is not its own unique snowflake and interesting, you know, not that, but just like, I want to, go challenge myself in a new dimension. And so as I started to look at things like, how do you create a positive engineering culture? How do you create a strong emphasis on mentorship? How do you, how do you build, you know, a strategy? And that's what really pulled me into management and leadership was the opportunity to create something, not just with code, but through indirectly through others. Right. Um, and that, is what drove me, you know, to kind of go down this path of, of towards CTO was like, how do I not just make things with my own two hands, but how do I mentor, empower, enable, you know, and lead other people to do much more than I could ever do myself, right? Yeah, that's how you accomplish more. You can only write so much code, you can only complete and deliver so many stories, but if you learn, if you decide to stretch yourself and learn the human side of things, and like you said, you know, grow yourself in that dimension, then you have the ability to collect amazing people and amplify your, your reach significantly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, my, my most rewarding moments were when I would see like people I had mentored mentoring others, right? It's sort of like the, how many degrees of separation. Autonomous like, oh, leadership. This, yeah, the seed I planted, you know, three years ago is now really blooming. And, and this, this team over here, this person that I, that I helped kind of grow up is just doing amazing things. And that, that was super, super rewarding for me. So how many people total in technology that you oversee, like across the globe? Well, now it's great. It's three, right? Uh, so, you know, at Delphix, I like to say there's as many CTO roles as there are CTOs. Like it tends to be a highly personalized thing for each company, yeah. right? And so there are CTOs with huge spans of operational control, right? All of product and R&D report up to them. There are CTOs that are primarily market facing, right? They're, they're on the road. They're talking to customers all the time. They're, you know, doing media interviews and they're CTOs that are much more research focused. And, you know, we do, we do research. And so, um, as I took on this role, um, you know, I, I, I'm remote, as I just said, from the main team. And as we moved to Atlanta, I was like, well, you know, the team's reaching a level of scale at that point, it was like a hundred, 110 people. And so that team was reaching a level of scale. It was clear. I'm not going back to the new 
new to the Bay Area anytime soon. And so I transitioned much more into sort of a strategy role. And so, you know, I manage a pretty small team, um, but we really sort of explore the edges of our technology, kind of looking at the future edges of the roadmap, but also sort of how do we integrate into the ecosystem of today. So the whole R&D at Delphix is probably close to 200 people now, but you know, the part that I actively manage is actually quite small. Yeah, so the, it's like the office of the CTO, or are the three of them actually like working on direct projects, or are they three people that are running massive parts of the organization? Oh no, they they are they are three individual contributors, right? And so, so you're running uh, an office of the CTO then? Yeah, exactly. I like that model. I I make notes when I meet with the CTOs of the <laughs> the different ways they operate, and yeah. I actually had just met with a a CTO in Boston who sold his company. I think his name is Joe. Kinsella sold his company to like VMware and mm -hmm. he operates an office of the CTO because yeah. uh, he just likes it. Some people just, that's like their style. And I, I love yeah. it when I see it because, because then we can publicize it and make it so that people don't have to hate what they're doing. And they know that being a CTO, that's an option. Yeah. Well, and the, the, the challenge is not to have the, uh, the office of roads to nowhere. Yeah. That's what I like to call it. They're like, you know, it's very easy to create R and D divisions that don't produce value for the company, right? Either, you know, they get really divorced from the business. Like, Hey, here's this awesome idea. I built this first person shooter for like the iPhone or whatever. And you're like, what does that have to do with our business? Right? Like, but there's also places that try to do like the, the early stage incubation, right? Oh, we'll build, version 0.1 of the product and then we will hand it off to engineering and that's just really hard to do i mean you've got like all of the planning alignment and staffing alignment you've got to have all the knowledge transfer you've got cultural issues of like the cool kids build the new stuff and so you know as i as i looked at how i wanted to shape the office of the cto it's much more you know how do we how do we help the product org Right. If you think about things that are on the edges of the product management roadmap, you know, six months out, nine months out, there's huge questions about those. And there's huge questions rooted in technology, right? Like what is possible? How do these things work? You know, how do customers actually use this technology? And that's where we can go and do much more bounded investigations and say, hey, here's what we learned about X or here's a prototype we built. Um, and, and that way they're not they're not designed to be roads to anywhere they're kind of like well-contained research items that then support the rest of the business and then we combine that with you know leading kind of field technologists you know sort of how do we elevate the maturity of our field and our customers in these technology domains so it's part research part kind of field technology leadership um but so far it's been working pretty well I like it. I think that, I think it's unique. We probably, we build these little, we started building these little guides because just we have experts on so many different things. And I, I'm going to, I think I'm going to find some of, some of the people like you who, who do this R and D and make a few bullet points on <laughs> R and D CTO. Cause you don't want to build it where it's like roads to nowhere. You want it to bring yeah. value to the business. So. Yeah. I talked to a lot of, as I was taking on this role, I reached out to, to folks in my network and, and through, you know, my CEO's network who had done similar things, um, try and find the right balance. 
It's tricky. Yes, it's always tricky. The balance is the work. It's like you you first identify the spectrum, right? Where could I where could I be? And then you figure out where your positioning within that is. I read some of your writing on Medium. I really enjoyed oh, yeah? it. Yeah. How Good. often do you write? Um, you know, I'm publishing probably once a week, but a lot of that is through, I don't do as much on Medium. So um, I try to publish through Forbes if I can. Mm -hmm. That's usually, um, you know, part of their technology council. Yeah, me um, too, buddy. There you go. I love it. You know, more and more of my writing is kind of geared towards, you know, supporting the business and I don't do as much, you know, like I, I love to write about, you know, diversity, inclusion and things like that. I, I want to get back to that more. Um, but yeah, I probably somewhere an article is being published, you know, around once a week. I've, apparently I have a lot of German articles. <laughs> <laughs> I just get these notifications because, you know, our teams will rework content and translate it into German. I'm like, oh, you're in your 17th German trade mag. Uh, and I'm like, okay. Um, hopefully I'm not like some crazy celebrity there. Um, but who knows? That'd be, you're like David Hasselhoff, man. Yeah, man. Secretly, I'll pretend <laughs> like if I ever go to Germany, I'll walk off the plane. It'll be like the Beatles just mobbing me. I'm like, oh, you wrote that article in, you know, the IT tech forum whatever issue <laughs> i believe it <laughs> yeah we'll see um yeah i'm, I'm not i'm not gonna hold my breath let's put it that way <laughs> so you're writing a lot about diversity and inclusion what's your what's your favorite like what's the recurring topic that happens in that writing you know for me obviously like you know i'm a white straight guy um i'm i'm not someone who's really had to experience a lot of what folks in sort of underrepresented groups have had to face. Um, but again, if you go back to the two things in my life that, that really motivate me, you know, creating things and having a positive impact on others, you know, I've always looked to ways to be like, how can I leverage that my privilege and my opportunity and, and, you know, my position to try and, you know, do more for those, those around us. And so, um, you know, I spend a lot of time, you know, trying to figure out like, how do you, how do you create corporate momentum around diversity and inclusion, right? And, and how do you do that in an environment that there's always 10,000 other priorities, right? You know, you're, you're, you know, unless you're a rocket ship to the sky where you're flush with cash and, you know, you're, you're going to go direct listing because everybody knows your name, right? Like for most companies, you know, this has to be weighed against a lot of other things that, um, very clearly tied to revenue. And so a lot of it is just, you know, how do we focus? How do we do the right things? Um, and so for me, it's, it's a lot about how do you have an inclusive environment, right? Like all the diversity in the world is for not if you're not actually listening to those voice, diverse voices, right? It's like, well, we brought all these diverse voices to the table. And by the way, the same group of like six old white dudes makes all the decisions like, well, all that diversity is not really helping you anymore. So, you know, how do you create an inclusive culture? Um, and then what are some of the, the methods to drive diversity through hiring, through, you know, better retention, you know, things of that nature. Um, so I try to look at it through that lens as kind of a leader in the company. What are the things I could be doing or others could be doing to, to build a better environment? So I'm a big fan of Alexa, right? I love I love the voice. I love 
having her play the music and just everything that 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 the the technology does are you using uh voice technologies there are you playing with that in the office of the cto not explicitly um you know it's on our sort of horizon as you think about how data is changing right you know today so much of data is like it's sitting in a database or it's sitting in a JSON document somewhere, right? You know, it's, it's like this structured or semi-structured data, but you know, voice computing is really interesting. Like, especially as you start into start to get into um, what is sensitive or not, right? Like if I have audio recordings of your voice in the call center, what is sensitive? Like, obviously you could literally say a credit card number, but, there's a lot of other unique attributes that I could tie that voice back to you or video data. Like what happens when someone says YouTube, like my right to be forgotten. I want me out of every video that you have. It's like, good luck. <laughs> right? Like, you know, or even like things like genetic information, right? You know, when, uh, when the human genome was published and, you know, Henrietta Lacks's grandkids like raised their hand and they're like, Hey, like that's private. Like there's a bit of me in that information and it's not okay for you to just like put it out there to the world. And so I'm really, you know, we Delphix don't actively manage voice data, right. Or, you know, um, you know, provide voice interfaces, but from a thought leadership perspective and trying to understand what our customers are doing, I'm super interested in kind of these new edges of data. And, and what does that mean? Even, even streaming data, right, which is not as far on the edge, but you think about what we do where it's like, hey, here's, here's a copy of your database. What does it mean to deliver a copy of a data stream? Like data in motion is just really different. And so what, what do developers need to develop applications based on streaming data technologies? So um, I spent a lot of time thinking about that and talking to customers about it, even if we're not, you know, actively prototyping as much as I would love to build some skills to, you know, uh, control Delphix from Alexa, uh, which folks have done in hackathons, uh, you know, I don't do much there today. So as you made your transition from individual contributor to first time leader, what are some of the struggles that you faced? What's like your big takeaway from those moments? Oh, I only can pick one. Only one. Um, <laughs> so so let's see, um, you know, my biggest takeaway was, um, you know, I'm naturally sort of a kind of a system thinker, right? I mean, I said that navigating to systems. And so my default reaction when I'm faced with some unknown thing is to try sort of um, articulate in the concept of a system like oh like recruiting let's break that down into some system and there's some steps and there's some tools and you know management decisions let's you know build you know some framework for that and things of that and it's a useful skill <laughs> but so much of management is number one just people in conversations right like there's a lot of times like, like hey the answer is not some like you know jira system to hand bug 47 off to this person in this it's like those two people just need to talk to each other right and you need to figure out how to get them to talk to each other and collaborate effectively and you don't you can't solve that with like with some some process or system so i think like one of the things i learned is you know how do i how do i fight that natural inclination and 
as you scale, changing systems becomes harder and harder. You know, when you're a team of 10 people, you're like, hey, let's try this new scrum model. Three weeks later, you're like, oh, that was a dumb idea. Let's try a different one, right? And oh, this one's much better. You know, when you have 100 people, like that's a big ship. And if you, the, it can take three months or six months to really get everyone on the same page about doing something in a new way. And if that's not the right way, you can't just change it again. And so it's the combination of those two things is like, well, look, you, everything can't be solved with, you know, a better system design. And by the way, if you steer this ship kind of in the wrong direction, oh my God, is it expensive to recover? Those two things were really challenging to me. Um, and I had to spend a lot more time talking to people and listening and having conversations than kind of sitting, you know, in not code, but thinking through process and structure and that sort of stuff. I like that you say that because I tend to be a systems thinker too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I look back on something and I was like, did I really think this would solve our recruiting problem to have like these 17 spreadsheets linked in this crazy way with this tooling? And I'm like, no, we just like hiring managers weren't really, didn't have a sense of ownership over the process, right? And they didn't feel empowered to work with recruiters in kind of a positive way. And, and that's ultimately what was broken, not, you know, how we schedule interviews in a spreadsheet. <laughs> so, so what are you most excited about today? What's happening within the company that you just really pumped up about? So, you know, about, I guess it was a year and a half ago, we really shifted the company from um, sort of a tool um, that was really targeting a set of infrastructure users to a platform that was really targeting developers and users of data. And it's that transition to a platform, which, you know, we're still going through is super exciting to me because a platform, it's not just something you build, like you build it for others to build on it and they're going to invest in it. They're going to build on it. And the opportunity to build, you know, partnerships and community and, and really seeing people take your platform and use it in new and interesting ways is, is thrilling to me. And so a lot of what, what we're focused on from, from a product strategy perspective is how do we give people better building blocks, right? How do, we're not always going to build the turnkey solution to solve every single use case of every, because data is only getting more complex. And so, but how do we give people really great building blocks and see what they create? And I love, I love watching what your users create because they're way more creative than you are. <laughs> or there's way more of them. And certainly the sum total of them is way more creative than you are. So you're just always seeing like, I love going to customers. I'll go to a customer and be like, you're doing what? That's really cool. Like I never thought of doing that or I never thought of doing it in this way. And so that, 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 growth of the platform is really empowering and exciting. And I love, I love communities of users. Um, it's great. It's like one computer versus Amazon web services. Like when you have like thousands yeah. of processing capabilities. What? Amazon's great at this, right? They build great blue building almost to a fault. Like Andy Jassy up on stage and he's like, look at all the names of our services. And it's like, 384 names, only half of which are recognizable. Like, these are great building blocks. I have no idea how to put them together, but they're really great, right? Um, but Amazon, I think, really embodies that as like, how do we give people the, the right components and let them build them together? 
um, I think they're, you know, there's, they're reaching a scale where just the number of building blocks starts to be daunting. Um, but, you know, you have ecosystems and other folks who are helping to stitch them together. So, uh, you know, we're no, we're no AWS, but certainly that idea of the platform is still pretty durable for us. Yeah, if they're always building like the base layer, then right. it can only be helpful to their business model. <laughs> Yeah, then it's it's great, and I I love you know platform also is like, um, you know like we we earn money if you ingest data into our platform. I'll simplify it to that. But let's say like we get paid when you ingest data into the platform. I don't care how you get data into it. I don't care if a partner built that connector or the community did or we did, or if you're using it for DevOps or you're using it for analytics, like none of the, like we don't have to monetize those pieces right i think some of the things you get into when you have this sort of closed ecosystem is every everything has to be monetized and we're like nope we're a platform anything that gets more data onto our platform or more data getting mask gets us money so we support all of it you know we love our partners we love our community you know go do it we have a question from the audience if that's okay sure thing what metric do you find useful to track Ooh, that is a good question. Um, so for someone like me in my role, I spend a lot of time thinking about our community and the ecosystem around us and trying to figure out how do you measure a vibrant community, right? How do you measure interactions? And it's challenging because the easiest thing to measure is sort of like, I don't know, how many integrations are there, right? Or how many, how many connection points do you have? But that doesn't really count how many people are using it. And so to me, the metric that I most love is something that tracks how your customers are using your product or using your integrations, right? And, and when you're building a SaaS service, that's really simple, right? You're just flush with metrics about every click and every interaction and everything like that. As you get into on-premise products or things like a community ecosystem, it gets to be more challenging, right? So, um, you know, my favorite metric is definitely um, basically customer use of a feature, like how, yeah. how, how customers are actually using it. And then trying to think really creatively about some of these other domains that are hard, hard to track. Um, you don't have click data for how many people are, you know, interacting with Delphix through Jenkins, for example. You know, I, you got to figure other ways to get that information. And what tech trend that's happening right now do you believe will impact your team in the near term? Uh, well, so we sell to big enterprises, which means our customers are always five years behind the latest <laughs> trends, right? Yeah. So like the things that are impacting our business are things like, you know, the shift to public cloud, which from a tech trend is pretty old at this point, right? It's like, oh yeah, like, dude, startups have been building in the cloud for a decade and you're telling me that's the trend that's impacting you. And it's like these big companies, they move slowly, right? And so the things that are nearest to us is, you know, how does public cloud adoption, how does new types of data affect us? For example, like streaming data, um, evented transports, you know, if you build an app 
based on Kafka, you know, a lot of the way we do things today doesn't make sense, right? And so those are not things that are gonna be relevant to our customers at, at a reasonable size in the next five years. But, you know, they're things that I'm very interested in because as data gets into these different types of environments, like, hey, I'm building with microservices. It's like, well, the way you use data is really different, right? You, you know, you're not, you're not all on one giant database, you know, just sharing a schema. So I think the biggest, the trend that's impacting us the most is probably just the shift to cloud. But again, that's a pretty old trend. If I think the next trend that's gonna impact us the most is I would just call it sort of, I don't know, modern data stores for lack of a, not big data, cause that's also old, but things like Kafka, Kinesis, you know, Amazon RDS, you know, basically these very different type of data stores that you don't interact with in the same way that, that you do traditional data. That's super interesting. And <laughs> it really is like, I found too, after, you know, it was one thing doing the podcast and before this, primarily I was just building technology for people who like knew me already. And so I didn't have much, ex I had virtually no experience selling into companies, like selling into companies. I just had relationships and I sold through my relationships, but yeah. selling into companies, it's amazing how the larger companies, how slowly they actually move. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We were, um, I was just at a large financial institution that I won't name. Um, but they have a process where in, in order to, deploy a package of software in their centralized IT systems, you have to have this special ID. Uh, it's, you know, X ID. I won't say what it really is because then you could figure it out. But it's like getting that X ID is like this massive process. And it took them six months just to get that ID so that they could deploy software into their centralized system. So like their internal resistance they're, SI? They're, yeah, their internal system, their, their internal processes and structures, which, you know, someone built to solve a problem, you know, 10 years ago, and nobody wants to change anymore. But yeah, it could take six months. Our, our biggest impediment to deployments is acquiring infrastructure, like literally a VM. It's like, can we have a VM with these specs? And they're like, I'll get back to you in nine months. What? Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we sold to a... a hardware manufacturer and again I won't name them they they literally make hardware and and the requisition process within the own company for a department to purchase their own hardware which is literally shipping off of it was three to six months <laughs> so like a company that's like building the servers like literally you could walk to the factory floor and just like reach over and be like I want that one and be like nope six months Six months. Was it because they were have such de such demand and they were behind on their production, or was it just? A, it's it's all their you know processes and the approvals, and you got to be in this queue, and you know how do we count for budget? I mean, it's just bureaucratic overhead. You know, some startups going to take that out. Because I'll tell you, I'll tell you this: I was working with a big company, which I won't name either, <laughs> and <laughs> and they came to me and they wanted the they wanted to try our leadership product, right? And uh, I was like, well, you know, everybody, your household name. So maybe, right. And eight months later, <laughs> we're still working through legal just to, <laughs> just to give them a demo. And right. uh, at, we, we eventually just had to shake hands and, you know, 
not do the deal because <laughs> because the amount of uh first of all the amount of cost i incurred at their organization with meetings and stuff it was ridiculous and i and i yeah. asked them too i said how do you guys buy slack like <laughs> how do you do that because like if every tool you want to get you have to do this type of dance and they're like yeah yeah i was like that's 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 hurting your your advantage to move fast in the market yeah it's i mean i can't imagine a startup being like hey i, I want a new uh, vm in amazon like sure talk to me in six months yeah like i'll get it i'll get it for you don't don't you worry <laughs> i mean you just you're it's it's just brutal um but yeah i mean they're they're trying to figure out ways to kind of work within these processes and you know dip their toe into public clouds uh you know some of them are successful most of them are not you know public cloud is mostly a science experiment why why would they not be successful in the transition you know it's a couple reasons one is you have basically all your processes and structures that you put in place to manage your on-prem data centers are not really a good fit for the public cloud, right? I mean, just doing tape backups and mailing them off. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know, Oh, you've got to allocate this ID before you can provision a VM. Right. And it's like, you can't really take advantage of it. You know, security and infosec, everybody gets much more concerned and the publicly accessible check mark clicked and now we have a data breach. Right now we're on the front page of the Times. And so security is really concerning. Like we deal with customers where um, there's only a certain set of AMIs that anyone in the company can ever provision. And they're like the blessed security ones. And if any instance ever gets created, that's not one of those, it gets killed within five seconds. So they have all these monitoring things. And so um, one of them, the same financial customer, um, I, I asked them, I'm like, where are you with public cloud? And they're like, eh, not really um, anywhere notable. And the way he described it is they, they put so many restrictions on it that it kind of lost its usefulness, <laughs> right? Like the speed and agility and, you know, the services would be like, oh, like, you can't use any services, like you only use EC2, you can only use these AMIs, you have to go through this requisition process, you have to do this secure, and it's like, at that point, it's not much better than on-prem. And so the companies that I've seen, now that company has started to take the guardrails off, and so there are some groups that are moving quickly, but I think the ones that are successful have to basically redesign their processes for the cloud. The ones that try to like translate their their processes and their approvals and their infosec and just make them work for the cloud they're really successful because they basically destroy the value of the public cloud once you put all of that bureaucracy around it so let's end on a positive note <laughs> yeah yeah no not that you know every company sucks and they're all no. gonna die okay something more positive than that yeah. <laughs> Um, now the only thing in my head is the statistic I heard the other day about the fortune 500 companies, like how fast they go out of business because they, it's amazing to me. It's like, you know, they get really big, the bigger they get, the slower they move. And then they all go out of business. And I'm like, that's unbelievable because the small people can move really fast and do services and share. And it's, I guess it's just a lot of learning experience I'm having right now, you know, being in my early thirties coming into this, this world and this market. Yeah. No, I, I love, I love learning about scaling challenges, right. And, and 
what what breaks and what doesn't break as you get bigger um and yeah moving fast and innovating you gets it gets really challenging um now, as you get big do you have any favorite leadership authors like Jim Rohn or John Maxwell or Tony Robbins type people? Um, you know, I, I used to read a, a, like a management book a month in my early days. Mm-hmm. Um, not so much anymore. Um, Gotta but, get audible. I do. That's your commute, um, but, I, but I listen to your podcast. That's all yeah, I ever listen to, right? That's it. That's it. 24 <laughs> seven. I don't have time for anything else, you know. You got date night um, with the wife, got some wine and candles and the modern CTO podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> She's like, we watched this latest series on Netflix. And I was like, nope, no, no priorities. Um, <laughs> no, but the, the books that do appeal to me are the ones that are more evidence-based. Like, um, you know, a lot of the earlier Jim Collins books. Yeah. Were like, great, built to last. Because, like, what, what drives me nuts is when when – someone publishes a book and they're like, here's the five factors to success. Yeah. Cause I said so. And you're like, all right, I don't buy it. Like, you know, like what, what led you to those five factors and like what failed and what worked. And so I prefer leadership books that sort of show a bit more of the process Mm -hmm. and and the books, you know, like Collins's books are much more, I mean, he's a researcher, right? So he's like, here's the parameters of the research and you know, here's what we set up to. And it's his conclusions are not fundamentally different than a lot of those you know i bequeath to the world my vision for you know five successful companies or whatever but um i just enjoy reading them more and i trust them more because i can see more of the thought process and like what failed so that's usually what i look for in a leadership book is like do you talk about how you got to this vision for leadership and do you explain your failures along the way if you do I'm going to trust your conclusions way more than if you're just like, I'm, I'm a CEO for 40 years and I know business better than anyone. So here you go. Like, here's my, my strategy. I wrote my first book and it is very much like a first version of most products that people make. Right. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. But my, my take on it was I'm not an expert, but here is my story of the mistakes I made and transition from developer to CTO. Yeah. And I get the most amazing feedback from 80% of the people. And then there's the 20% of the people who are like, this is not a a detailed guide on how to (laughs) become a CTO. It's not a step-by-step career development guide. I'm like, no, 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 no. It says my story is like going from developer to CTO. Like this is a book that's like a collection of mistakes. And then to be like, it's too short. And then other people are like, I like it. It's a feature that it was short. Like it was the best thing I could read this on a flight. And I, the people that said it was too short, I was like, I'll go make more mistakes. (laughs) Yes. I'm I'm not done making mistakes. I'm not done. Just wait for the, but the good news was it's very similar to putting out an actual product because I learned what people expect from a book and there's no blog post I could have read. There's nothing you could actually do without putting an actual print book together, selling it to thousands of people and hearing the things that they love and the things that they hate. Like that's just real to me. So now on the second book that we're working on, I figured out the different elements different people are looking for in order to make them happy. Like for you, you probably would enjoy like a Malcolm Gladwell type book because he does a nice story data mix. Yeah. Yeah. I do like Gladwell books, but yeah, I like, I like someone who's, yeah, I think the story data mix is a good, 
good way to describe what I like is I like to, I like to understand the why and not just, not just get the story, but you know, understand how we got there. You want the journey. You want the journey. You want the road trip. You don't want to just see a picture of them, you know, on the Island. Right. You want to see the the road trip. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So Well, this has been absolutely fantastic, my friend. I really enjoyed our conversation. I think it's going to make for an unbelievable podcast. What do you think? Great. Uh, Of course it is. I mean, was there ever any doubt? There was no, there was no doubt. There was no doubt. doubt. We we have the unicorn on our side. So. All right. There we go. go. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to help, please take a moment right now to open up the iTunes app and leave a review of the podcast. If you take a screenshot of the review and text it or email it to a friend who needs to listen to the podcast and then CC me, joel at moderncto.io. If you CC me on the email, I'll send you a copy of the Modern CTO book or give you a shout out on the podcast, whichever you prefer. We're trying to get listed on the top 100 for iTunes and I need your help in order to do this.